How does God deal with his enemies? What does God think of his enemies? People in rebellion against him, passively or actively. What does he do when he comes across them? What does he do when they come across his path? Our passage this morning is a dangerous one because it is so familiar to so many of us. Familiarity can breed contempt, and so we come to it and say, oh yes, it's Saul's conversion. Saul who would later become Paul, and we glance over it incredibly quickly. And yet, Acts chapter 9, if we stop, pause, ponder, and think deeply about it, tells us something of how it is that God deals with his enemies. This isn't the first time that we've met Saul in Acts. We met him earlier in Acts chapter 8. Uh, We're told that on that day, the day that Stephen was killed, stoned to death for preaching Jesus, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, Saul began to destroy the church. And he went from house to house. And he dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. And now we find him again. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Uh, So um, zealous was he that now he didn't just go door to door, but he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to go to the synagogues, not in Jerusalem anymore, but further afield, uh, specifically to Damascus, so that when he got there, if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he didn't discriminate, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus, though, on his journey, something happened. Uh, We have sort of colloquially come to uh, refer to a Damascus Road experience as uh, an experience that becomes uh, life-changing or life-altering. We might know something of Saul's conversion. In fact, you might even have the heading there in your Bible. This is Saul's conversion. But what is conversion? Uh, Conversion is the way that God wants to deal with his enemies. Conversion begins with the gracious gift of new life. It begins with a a gracious gift of life that allows for genuine faith and repentance to take place in the life of a person. The, the, The thing that God is doing in the life of Saul, although it is big and dramatic and grand and a massive turnaround. Andrew alluded it, you know, when he became a Christian, when I became a Christian, and I imagine when you became a Christian, you weren't going house to house, ripping people out of our home, their homes, putting them in prison and stoning people to death. So although that, that might have been his dramatic story, uh, the conversion of all people uh, has uh, the same seeds the same beginnings, and it begins with God. The first question we have to ask ourselves this morning as we look at Saul's conversion is, how did it happen? How did this take place? Was it a cover-up? Was he just trying to become an insider so that he could expose more Christians? Was it a psychological break? Had he gone mad? Uh, What was this conversion that took place? 
Uh, We're told later on that uh, a number of the people who would help Saul and the church itself were skeptical of what took place. Um, Was it just that he uh, had had enough of being one way and he wanted to become another way? How does conversion take place? Well, verse 3 begins to tell us, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, How conversion takes place is a miracle of God. It's God's active hand upon somebody, taking them from darkness to life. Paul would later write about uh, conversion as being those who were spiritually dead, being brought to spiritual life by God. Conversion always begins with God. Paul, again, because he wrote so much of the New Testament, would write in 2 Corinthians 4 that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone his light into human hearts to bring about his purpose of raising dead people to life, of giving the blind sight of setting those who were slaves to sin free from sin. So that the first thing that we've got to understand about conversion is that it's not something that human beings can create. It's not something that emanates from within us. In actual fact, again, and I apologize, but Paul would write, and I don't apologize, because Paul writes all that he writes out of his conversion story. Paul writes all that he writes out of his experiences. So that in Romans chapter 5, he could say, say this, while we, that, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, rebels, enemies, aliens, and strangers to God, okay, those are the paraphrases, he just says while we were still sinners, but you get the idea of what a sinner is. While we were in a broken relationship with God, dead, blind, and imprisoned, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when there was something good within us, nice within us, or even likable within us. So that the first thing that we've got to understand about conversion, about the how of conversion, is that it is a miracle of God breaking into a person's life to give them some sense of the realization that they need salvation and forgiveness. Salvation um, is the significant point of the Jesus event. Uh, The Jesus event that he came into the world as God's dearly loved son, died on the cross for our sins and rose to new life. Uh, The Savior in the Jesus event is God himself, who orchestrates that salvation. And salvation, we are told, is a gift that comes from God so that no one can boast in themselves. Salvation is a part of the history of the people of God. If you go and you read through the Old Testament all the way up until the time that Jesus comes, what you will find over and over and over and over until it becomes so familiar that you don't even see it, is that God is a saving God who is saving a people for himself. That he repeatedly acts as a savior throughout the history of Israel. 
He sends Moses to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. He raises up judges. We looked at the book of Judges last year. He raises up judges to save his people. He would raise up David to defeat the Goliath to save his people Israel. He would send the prophets as, uh, uh, to announce salvation, to call people to turn back to God so that they could be saved. This is the history of God and it is the history of salvation. And it was only in the history of the nation of Israel that God brought about this salvation. As nations would look upon Israel, uh, they would see this saving God. But now in Jesus, God has finally brought about a final salvation. Jesus is the last Savior because He is the Savior for all time. And so when Luke sums up what salvation is, he sums it up uh, as the idea of, at least in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, in his gospel and in Acts, Luke sums it up as the forgiveness of sins. And when he talks about the forgiveness of sins, don't think the Ten Commandments. Don't think losing your temper. Don't think uh, becoming angry. Don't, don't think about sins. When Luke talks about the forgiveness of sins, when we see it working itself out in Saul's conversion, look at what he says to Saul in verse 4. The light shines around him and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul has the presence of mind to say, who are you, Lord? And he replies, I am Jesus whom you are Persecuted. The thing that Saul needed forgiveness for was not for the persecution of the Christians, but for his persecution of Jesus. Jesus stands, stands in solidarity with all those who follow and all those who believe in him so that what Saul was doing to the Christians, he was actually doing to Jesus himself. It wasn't that just that he was putting people in prison. It wasn't just that he was having people stoned. Is that he was rejecting God's Savior. He was rejecting the only person who could give him the forgiveness of his sins. This is really important because this is something you've got to understand about Paul. Paul was incredibly zealous for God. He was incredibly zealous for the God of the Old Testament who is the Lord who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ but what he had done in his uh, zeal to protect the faithfulness and the purity of the people of Israel was that he had rejected the promise that God had made that he would send a savior Saul, Saul, who would become Paul, would later write all about how uh, there was, compared to all the other Israelites and all the other Jews, he couldn't be faulted. If you wanted someone who outwardly was righteous and holy and looked the part in every way imaginable, that was Saul. You could pick apart his life and you would struggle to find sin. Or sins. That was how rigorous he was in keeping the moral written law of God. So, what was it that Saul needed forgiveness for? 
he needed forgiveness for rejecting Jesus Christ as God's Lord and Savior. And we know that he rejected him because of the way that he persecuted his followers. You know, it's interesting, and it just made me think back to Matthew chapter 25, when, um, that when Jesus is uh, uh, speaking to those he will separate, the sheep and the goats, and how you tell the difference. And he says, whatever you, and, and he says to the sheep, you clothed me, you fed me. He says to the goats, you didn't clothe me, you didn't feed me, you didn't visit me in prison, you didn't give me water to drink. And then they say, but how? When did we do that? We didn't even see you, Jesus. And he says, whatever you did for the least of of these, you did unto me. And so whatever it is that Saul is doing to Jesus' followers, that is what it is that he is doing to Jesus. The way that he is treating Jesus' followers is the way that he is treating Jesus. And so for this complete about-face to take place, just so you know, by the end of the chapter, Paul himself is being persecuted and people are trying to kill him. And at the end of the chapter, he's busy preaching about Jesus and inviting people to become Christians and follow the way. For this about face to take place, to go from rejecting the Lord Jesus to accepting him, uh, to being one of his best publicists of all time in all history to all people, has to begin and be a work of God in his life. Friends, you might be here this morning and you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not a particularly sinful person. There's nothing particularly bad about me. I like the Ten Commandments. I think that they're good to follow. I wish other people would also follow them. It would make our country a much nicer place to live in. You might think, well, I'm very self-controlled. I do all kinds of things. I give to the poor. I teach in Sunday school. But let me ask you this this morning. You know, Paul was really zealous and sincere about everything that he did and everything that he believed in. And yet he was sincerely wrong. Because he was rejecting the only one who could offer him forgiveness of sins. Who could restore his brokenness and bring him back into a relationship with God. The reason that he can say that it is by God's grace that we're saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves so that no one can boast. Is because we love to boast. We love to boast about what we do for God. In order to try somehow to earn his favor. And yet, until it was that God shone his light into Saul's heart and brought about the beginnings of this miracle of conversion, this was not possible. Conversion, salvation, and the forgiveness of sins begins with God doing a work in our lives. Paul, up until that point, uh, didn't know, didn't realize, didn't see It's actually interesting because what happens to him is that God makes him uh, blind. He becomes blind. Uh, Now, you might think, okay, well, that's just part of the story. But actually, even that's laced with meaning. Uh, The the blindness that besets him is actually uh, almost a a living uh, physical uh, metaphor of what it is in his life. He was blind. He was spiritually blind. And so he becomes blind. But it goes even deeper than that. I learned this week, I didn't know this, I learned this week for the first time. In Deuteronomy 28, we read these words, The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. It's in Deuteronomy 29, and it's what will happen to God's people if they reject God's covenant, which was His promises by which we would have a relationship with Him. His promises and His covenant through which He would send His Savior. So if you reject the covenant 
The curse of the covenant was madness, blindness, and confusion. And then the next verse says, And at midday you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say, Lord, Lord, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. Such was his state. Uh, Such was the uh, covenant uh, curse, as it were, that had fallen upon Saul because he failed to see Jesus as the one who could forgive his sins. Now the second thing I need to mention this morning is why. Why did God convert Paul, Saul, Saul, who would later become Paul? Why did God convert Saul? Well, we're told why in verse 15, but this isn't the main point of this sermon, so we'll just glance, touch on it and go over it. Uh, The Lord says to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Why did God save Paul? Saul, why did he convert him? Why did he bring about this miracle in his life? Well, because he was going to be his chosen instrument. Uh, the conversion of Saul is actually called, told three times in the book of Acts. Here in 9, and then Saul, who becomes Paul, tells it twice himself. In Acts 22 and Acts 26 as part of his testimony. But the reason why God saved Paul like this was to carry his message to the Gentiles and their kings and before the very people of Israel. He was saved and called into the service of God to share that message of the gospel. Now again, I know that we are different to Saul and his conversion is not our conversion and yet we can see similarities between them. But it was Jesus who said to his disciples, his followers, go and make disciples of all nations. I wonder who it is that the Lord is putting on your heart or in your life to whom he has saved you for himself, but who he has saved you to carry the gospel to and to share the gospel with in your life. I hope that we'll fill that map up with uh, tons of stories of carrying that gospel to other people. Uh, So how he became a Christian, why he became a Christian, and thirdly and finally, what were the marks Uh, of this uh, conversion that took place in his life. In other words, as we uh, look at what happened uh, to uh, Saul, as we think about his conversion and our conversion, what questions should we be looking at ourselves to say, is my conversion a genuine conversion? Or am I sincerely living the Christian life, but sincerely living it with the wrong convictions? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, we read this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is Paul writing. Of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him 
and receive eternal life. We're told that one of the reasons why Paul was why Saul was converted and saved was so that he might be an example and a display of the immense patience of Jesus Christ. An example and a display to you and to me of that immense patience that he shows to us in doing the same work in us as he did in Saul. So here are a couple of things. Actually, just three. I don't want to overload you this morning. There's a lot more. If you want more on this, I've got so much material and some great articles for you to read to think about the doctrine of conversion and to grow in that. But here are just three things from the passage that we see happening as the marks of a converted life. Number one, it's the recognition that Jesus is Savior and Lord. The recognition that Jesus is Savior and Lord. In verse 10, the Lord calls a man named Ananias, and the Lord tells him, Go to the house of Judas on straight street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias says, I've heard about this guy, Lord. Um, There have been many reports about him. It's all over Twitter. It's all over Facebook. It's all over CNN. And he's doing lots of harm to your saints in Jerusalem. And I'm sure he's just come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all those who call on your name. The Lord then tells him he's an instrument that I've chosen. So Ananias goes to the house and he enters it and he places his hands on Saul and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once, okay, so this is only a couple of days. Three days he was blind, a couple more days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the one who caused havoc in Jerusalem? among all those who call on his name. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. The one who rejected Jesus as the Christ now proves with power and authority, baffling many, that Jesus is in fact the Christ. The first mark of a true conversion is a recognition that Jesus is Savior and Lord. A recognition in your mind, a recognition in your heart. A recognition that Jesus is central to all of life and all of eternity. I mean, think about it this way. How central is Jesus to all of your life and all of your hopes? Is He so central to your happiness and your joy? to your hope that that would you be happy if Jesus wasn't a part of your life? Or would you be happy with heaven if Jesus wasn't going to be a part of heaven? That is the, the first mark of this converted life, is this love, this desire, this, this longing for close and deep intimacy every day with Jesus Christ. The second mark of a truly converted life 
is the desire to be associated and have affection with and towards other Christian people. To want and to desire Christian people. In Acts chapter 9, there are at least 15 references to Christians. Seven times Luke records the disciples. Once he talks about the followers of the way. Oh, just incidentally, it's quite interesting that the Christians weren't called Christians yet. They were called the the followers of the way. And it's quite interesting because he goes to persecute the followers of the way in verse 2. And that word way is the same word that's translated road. The road that Saul is uh, converted on, on his way. It's It's the way and the road. So he goes to persecute the way, and on the way, he becomes part of the way. Anyways, 15 times there's references to Christians. They're called saints. Uh, Those who call on the name of the Lord, they're they're called the brothers. Uh, And what God does in his wisdom is he uses people in this world uh, to bring other people into the fellowship of the church. And so in Damascus, he sends Ananias to go and to be uh, the one who will walk hand in hand with Saul into the church. In Jerusalem, he sends another Barnabas, because everybody's really skeptical of Saul. He sends Barnabas to be the one to uh, build that bridge and to uh, bring uh, Saul into the church. He doesn't just uh, associate and have affection for Christian people. He becomes so part of them that in his uh, preaching uh, of the gospel, people begin to conspire to kill him. So verse 23, after many days had gone by, still in Damascus, um, the Jews conspired to kill him. Saul heard of the plan, and so he gets lowered out of the city wall in a basket. In Jerusalem, uh, Saul stayed with the disciples. He moved about freely. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Uh, Paul didn't just keep his distance from the church. He became very much a part of it. So that the mark of the converted life is the desire to associate and the longing to have affection with other Christian people. I wonder if that's how you feel about other Christians. I wonder if that's how you feel about your church. And the third thing that we see happen, the third mark of a converted life, is a recognition of the people who are most in need. A recognition of the people who are most needy. And for Paul, the people who were most needy were those who were cut off from Christ. Why is it that he so quickly turned about face and started promoting Jesus boldly at every opportunity that he possibly could? It was because that conversion was real. Paul would later lament the blindness of so many of his own people whose zeal to achieve their own righteousness kept them from seeing and submitting to the righteousness of Christ, which is God's free gift. Even we who affirm intellectually that we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, are at risk of succumbing to a blindness of our hearts, trying to make ourselves worthy of God's favor 
rather than surrendering to his humbling and his amazing grace. And so we see in verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues. Verse 22, he grew more powerful and baffled the Jews, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 29, he talked and he debated with the Grecian Jews, all the while teaching and holding out that only those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus can be saved. That Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. But no one comes to the Father except through him. Friends, let me bring all of these strands together. Firstly, let me say in bringing this to a close that the exciting thing about reading Acts chapter 9 is that is the way that God wants to deal with his enemies. God doesn't want to smite, smote, or smitten them. He doesn't want to destroy them. He doesn't want to burn them. He doesn't want to kill them. He wants to save them through the forgiveness of their sins to bring them back into a relationship with himself. Yes, a day is coming when God will judge the living and the dead. Yes, it has been appointed for man once to die and after that to face judgment. But in this time, in our life, in this period between Christ's first coming and his second coming, it is the time and the day of the Lord's favor. It is the time and the day of salvation. It is a time not to harden our hearts, but to let God uh, do His work in us. Not to reject His light that is shining towards us, uh, but to recognize that He wants all people to be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. And so let me ask you this morning, is Jesus Christ central to all that you say, to all that you do, to all the desires of your hearts? Uh, Do you see uh, Christ's uh, people as those, not just who you uh, associate with, but who you have deep affection with? Uh, Part of that is simply because what we do to them is how what we do to Jesus. The way that we think about other Christians is actually the way that we think about Jesus. If we say that we love Jesus and we don't love those around us, we actually don't love Jesus. If we have a deep longing and affection for other Christians, uh, for their well-being and for their good... It's actually a sign that we have deep affections and longings for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When was the last time that you prayed for boldness to share the gospel uh, with other people? And I don't mean preaching. You know, it's interesting that Paul, he taught, he debated, he reasoned with. Later on in the book of Acts, and Acts is full of all these incredible conversion stories. But you know, if you actually go and read through the book of Acts, there's very few sermons... There isn't actually that much preaching as you were. But you know it's full of people's conversion stories. Later on, when Saul stands in front of a king, he doesn't preach the gospel, as it were, in the traditional sense. He says, this is my story. This is how I came to Christ. This is how I became a follower of Jesus. This is how I hated him and how he worked in my life and how I now love him. When was the last time that you shared your story with somebody else in the hope and the prayer that God would use your story 
to shine his light into that person's heart. And so, friends, if we think about our own conversion, as I think about mine, and if you think about yours, have you recognized and do you love who the Lord Jesus Christ is and the demands that he places on your life? Will you associate with great affection with God's people in your local church? And is your desire to see people's needs for what they truly are, their desperate need above all else, of a Savior, Jesus Christ? Those are three simple marks of the truly converted person. Can you recognize and see those marks in your life this morning? And can I just say that if your answer is no, I can't, don't leave here without doing something about it. Don't leave here without praying and say, Lord, please do something in my life. Please make this miracle happen. Don't leave here without coming and speaking to myself or Andrew or Matt or Des and saying, I, I need to do something. Don't, maybe you need to turn to your, uh, to your spouse and say, there's something broken right now in my life and I have to act on it. The Bible says, today if you hear God's voice, if God is calling you right now, Bearing in mind that Saul had a light from heaven that was boom. For many of us, our stories take longer than that and happen over a period of time. But it's no less God shining his light into our hearts. But can I encourage you not to leave here this morning without saying or doing something. Because this might be your day, your moment, where God is shining his light into your heart. Bringing about faith. And calling you to repentance and a life lived for him. Saul would spend the rest of his life calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so may God help each one of us to call on his name all the days of our lives. Until we're welcomed to his eternal dwelling with those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you bow with me and let's pray. I'm just going to give you a moment because you might want to just pray right now.